Listener-supported KFUO invites you to listen live to our annual share It's your opportunity to show your support to KFUO. If you can't join us live, please prayerfully consider supporting us by calling 314-996-1518 and asking about our giving levels. You can also click the Give Now button on our webpage. Share 2017, April 20th, 21st, and 22nd. Good afternoon, Universe. Welcome to another Cross Defense, your weekly dose of worldview demolition, breaking down the stronghold, bad opinions, and false notions of the enemy, and setting up shop with the mighty fortress of our Lord's Word. I am your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, and together we are studying Christian dogma because we believe that when God speaks, He does so that we would speak back to Him those same words, that confession, same saying, speaking again, can be done, that amen isn't just letting it fly past your head, but actually changing who you are, changing what you think, changing the words that form your mind. St. Paul exhorts all Christians to hunger for the truth, to watch your life and doctrine closely and persevere in them for just these reasons, right? And because on top of that, the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but instead will turn aside to suit their own desires, gathering around them a great number of teachers to teach what their itching ears want to hear. But you, Christian, you must firmly hold to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, because it is that message that will be the salvation of not only your soul, but of the souls of all the lives of men as we'll talk about today with some universal grace, as well as the entire world. Today to talk about universal grace, among other things, I got Pastor Sean Danzer and Pastor Aaron Hamilton. Pastor Danzer is pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Great Bend, North Dakota, and Peace Lutheran Church in Barney, North Dakota. And Pastor Hamilton serves Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lisbon, North Dakota. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be back. So we're picking up at something that might seem like we're bashing on Calvinism today, but that's not really the goal as a whole for for people. We're going to get into a little bit of what we would call the false formal and material principles of Calvinism, of which really ends up being inadvertently the, the formal and material principles, we'll explain what that means, of all of Protestantism. So you have the Reformed being a very narrow group that believe very specific things, and then it can also be the, the larger kind of spirituality of Protestantism. But the reason Pieper is doing this in its in the context as he sets up this dogmatics is not so much to, to debate the Calvinists, but to show his his bigger introductory point, that you have two religions in the entire world. One is the religion of law, and one is the re- religion of grace— The religion of grace, the gospel, is taught by Christianity alone, which separates it from all the religions of the world, and that all the divisions that you find within Christianity come down to us rejecting that distinction and being like unto the religions of the world by replacing some amount of that grace with works, by by reinserting works into the equation and the main idea of the spirituality. And so to to not just assert this idea, but to, to show the idea with actual facts from history— he then takes a look at some of the very basic ideas of both Roman Catholicism and Calvinism as sort of that preeminent and best of, and I would say, uh, the Protestant world. He looks at the ideas from their own mouth and shows how these things, where they disagree with us, are based first not on Scripture, but on some other thing, whether it's what the tradition of the Pope says or whether it's what reason says, and then ultimately end up undermining our, our trust in grace, undermining grace alone. He picks up then, uh, continuing this 
is the second kind of round on Calvinism. He's got a little more to say about them than, than about Rome. But on page 28 of his Dogmatics, Volume 1, in section C, he says this. He says, The false principle, both the formal and the material, of the Calvinistic theologians is evident, particularly in their answer to the question, Is the grace of God in Christ universal or particular? Now, he says more, and we want to get into that, but first, there's a number of terms we definitely want to parse there so they don't go over our head too fast. And, and as theologians, even talking with the other pastors, we've had to like rediscover this too. It's not the way we talk every day. So he talks about this formal versus the material principle. The formal principle is what you say is the foundation of your belief, right? It's, it's what you got on your sign. We believe this. And the material principle is how that claim plays out. In some ways, it's the practice of what you believe. It's how it hits the, the matter. It's material. And so to go to what a Lutheran would say is our formal principle is Holy Scripture. That is what we found our belief on. But how does that work out in practice? What's the thing that everything revolves around? Well, as much as it is Holy Scripture, it is also justification by grace alone through Christ alone. And as he's already established then, uh, Peeper here, uh, the Calvinist has a different set of formal and material principles. And he showed in the previous section from their own writings that their formal principle is not Scripture. The thing that they say really has to be trusted and isn't Scripture. Even though they do say you should trust in Scripture, Scripture has something above it. And that thing that's above it is reason, logic. Scripture has to make sense. You know, God would never say something that didn't actually make sense on our level. That's their formal principle. Now, they don't claim that. It, like, they don't come out and say, well, we only believe in reason. But if you look at their writings, whenever there's a debate with the Lutherans about what Scripture says and we disagree, the, the issue, the, the way they go to it is reason. Why is the Lord's Supper not the body of Christ? Well, it doesn't really make sense. That's really what it comes down to. Their material principle is something very different, though. And we'll get into more of that now uh, in the section that we're going to look into. The material principle is the sovereignty of God. It is God's all-powerfulness. It's not God's grace. It's, it's his power. So first off, you have these two things, and this will become evident, he says, as we answer this question. Is the grace of God in Christ universal? That is, did Jesus die for everybody? Or particular, that is, did he only die for some. I want to let my, my brothers here get into this, but I'm going to give them a little more to chew on first. So asking that question, is the grace of God in Christ for everybody or only for some? Peeper says, the Calvinistic Reformed will not permit Scripture to answer the question. Though in many passages it teaches universal grace, they find their answer in the historical result or in the historical experience. That is, we can go to Scripture, and we're actually going to do that. There's a couple of Bible passages to look at. But at the end of the day, whatever those passages say, the Protestant answer, the Reformed answer, the Calvinist answer is, yeah, I might say that, but you got to look at what actually happened. There are people who do not believe in Jesus, therefore he could not have died for all of them, otherwise they would believe. Gentlemen, I'll let you dogpile on all of that wherever you want to start. It's perfect to the discussion of formal and material principle because we're trying to get to the material principle, and that's the question. And what form, what, what, what the formal principle you use to discover that is— will make all the difference, right? We want them to discover it from the scriptures, answer the question with the scriptures, uh, because, and in fact, then we get our material principle in this matter, it's that grace is, in fact, universal. Uh, but the the reform don't. They, they use a different principle in order to find the answer. And their principle is just uh, the way people puts it, is historical result or historical experience. Look around you. Um, is everybody saved? No. Therefore, 
grace must not be for everybody because God can't uh, want something and then not have it happen because he's sovereign. He's powerful over everything. What he wants to do happens, period. And so it can never be a situation that he wants people to be saved, and they're not. We can see there are people who aren't saved, therefore do the math. This whole discussion is really um, interesting to me. I went to a a Calvinist college, and so I had a very in-depth study of Calvinist theology since that was my major. Um, And the Calvinist people are very close and near and dear to my heart because I have some friends uh, who are Calvinists, but I also married into a Calvinist family and saved their daughter into the Lutheran faith. Um, There's a little bit of humor there. Um, I was smiling loudly. (laughs) <laughs> I could tell. Um, it, it's it, they're they're good, pious people, um, and I I want to believe them when they say that their formal principle is um, is scripture. However, as as Pastor Denzer pointed out, uh, in practice we see that it honestly is not. Scripture is not the formal principle, um, as you said in the opening the formal principle for them ends up being reason, very similar to the uh, Roman church, as you discussed in your previous podcasts. So he gives us a number of verses here, and and we're going to kind of look these up because I think it's pretty important. So we're saying from the start, we're going to rely on Scripture. So you have something like John verse 1, verse 29, which says, The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the, the intention there is to look at that word world, and which is Greek, it's cosmos, it's even kind of bigger than the world. It's like everything that we know that exists. He points us to John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and then, of course, that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. He points us to 1 John 2, 2, where John again tells us he, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the entire world. And then finally, he points us to 1 Timothy 2, verses 4 to 6, which says, I'm going to actually give you verse 3 so you get the whole sentence. Uh, this is good that is praying, and it pleases is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved. And to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. So we're saying, look, these verses, they seem pretty clear to state uh, that Jesus died for everybody. So if we're going to ask a question about what, whether or not Jesus did die for everybody, what do we rely on? And then Peter gives us this other gem. He, he dug this out of Calvin's Institutes, and it, I imagine these don't show up as often as we'd like them to formally, uh, but they do show up enough, and they certainly show up materially, that is in practice, where Calvin actually says this about the question. He says, however universal the promises of salvation may be, there is no discrepancy between them and the predestination of the reprobate provided we attend to their effect. Experience teaches that God does not will the repentance of those whom he externally calls in such a manner as to affect all their hearts. Now, now the key there is, what does he say? He doesn't say, well, Scripture also says this. 
He says instead, experience teaches that even though it says God so loved the world, there's people who believe that or who hear that and don't believe that. So clearly God doesn't really will them to be saved since we know he is the, the mediator of salvation. It's pretty straight up. It's it's really interesting the way that Calvinists uh, handle scripture. Um, we in the Lutheran church always... Um, uh, when we find a passage of scripture that contradicts either with our experience and reason or uh, even with another passage of scripture, because there are those points of scripture uh, that do talk about predestination, right? Um, the Lord said, uh, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Uh, and all throughout um, Paul's epistles, he's always talking about uh, election and and grace, Um and the Reformed love to grab onto those, and they're partly right to grab onto them. Uh, but then they look at these passages that you just read, Pastor Fisk, about uh, God loving everyone and willing that everybody be saved. And then, as we already mentioned, they look to their experience and they say, well, not everybody repents, not everybody's saved. So therefore, what God said here, um, we have to qualify it, right? <laughs> world doesn't mean world. Here, world is uh, special code for only the elect. And there's a, um, there's a place where, as Lutherans, we would say, look, this is a technical term. This is used a very specific way in Scripture, and so we have to understand this doesn't mean the way we would hear it today. But whenever we do that, it's because the Scripture itself says, hear this term in this way in some other place. So the right. challenge is, show me where the Scriptures say that the word world doesn't mean uh, the world, but just means the elect, and the, all they can point to is these same texts, right? So it's a circular right. argument. Exactly. Pastors, pastors get pretty tired. I think uh, I don't know. It's our boredom with God's word. Shame on us. But uh, John three sixteen, right? It's just so overused. Can't we go somewhere else? Uh, but our listeners are so familiar with it as they ought to be. It's a wonderful passage that everybody ought to know. And I, I think this is one of the best ones, mostly because it is so well known, but also because if you just go on to the next two verses. Uh, it's it's so clear, and we run into a big problem if we want to do this redefining of the word world. I'll just read it. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Here we run into the problem if Calvin wants to say that God has chosen and, in fact, sent Christ to 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 condemn the world, well, it says here he didn't, but to save the world, still the whole group. You can't, uh, you can't say that, you know, he, he did come to condemn part of the world, and then he, world actually has different meanings in the same sentence in this case. And so, then the next verse is, whoever believes in him is not condemned, whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he does not believe. Here you have um, the world that God has come to save, that's his intention. That's his desire. And yet in the next verse, you see that that desire doesn't come to fruition, you might say. Um, the world is not saved. There are, in fact, those who are condemned. And again, the point in all of this, because there, there's a place and a time, and we'll actually keep digging into this tulip idea. There's a place and a time for that. But the point behind this then is ask the question, what's running the show of this? Is it Scripture alone and what Scripture says, John three sixteen and following, that is running the show of understanding and, and how we approach this idea of election and whether or not grace is universal? Or is it 
my own reason, my own ability to understand it. Pastor Hamilton has brought up that there are passages that teach the eternal election, the monergism, the, the, the working of God alone in salvation. And yet we also have these passages that teach that man is able to resist this and reject this reality. What do you do with that? Because when you try to make it into a math equation, it breaks it breaks the mold. It breaks your brain. You, you, you just can't harmonize these passages. They would seem to contradict each other unless you can accept some form of miraculous paradox, some idea that God himself is bigger than even our own reason. And then this ultimately is the accusation that the Calvinist approach to the Bible assumes before it starts that our reason is bigger than God. Pieper writes uh, in detail on this whole section later. Uh, he'll get to it just in full detail in the second volume. I don't know if our uh, readers have that. Page 26 of volume 2 is kind of where he begins this. But he, he talks about this, that uh, really this particularism that God has only saved some, not the world, uh, is based not on the word of God, but on human speculation into the will and the work of God at its deepest, most absolute, highest level, we might say, um, which is this sovereignty and, and this axiom that takes over. And the axiom is... Whatever God earnestly purposes, wants to do, has to, in every case, actually occur. So you just you start from the end and you go backwards, right? So we know that not all men are actually saved. Therefore, we have to conclude that the Father never did love the world, that Christ never did reconcile the world, that the Holy Spirit, you get the whole trinity here, never did purpose to create faith in all hearers of the word. Uh, you And then the means of grace breaks down. God's words can't be trusted, right? Well, what do you do when you have a Bible passage that says, I came to save the world, right? Uh, I desire all men to be saved. But you actually in practice say, well, God didn't really mean that, at least not as the words sound, because you could hear that as a person, but you doesn't mean you hear. And then you have a real question, I think, on on where, how do I figure out if the you in the Bible is ever talking to me? On the scene. The, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, in the dark night of the soul, when when you're wrestling with God, there's just no way you're ever going to come to any conclusion other than it probably doesn't mean me. And this is the devil's work to actually destroy faith, to take us away from Christ, to look entirely at ourselves probably to bolster our weakness with some kind of works, which is only going to be adding weakness to weakness. And everybody ends up in hell that way. There's our concern is you're going to lose your faith. Uh, you're going to lose your faith not because of of um, God's failure, but actually because you turned away from the promises that are just blatant in the scriptures. And it's not just individuals that are going to lose their faith. It's, it's bodies the seeds of this go so much further than, than their initial seemingliness. It, you know, it seems like at first, oh, material principle and and universal grace. These are these are words for theologians only. Pastors worry about these things. How many angels are in the head of a pin and all that? But then, when you look at the major major attacks at the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a historical event, or the doctrine of the Trinity in present day churches, places that call themselves Christianity, inevitably. It's because their material, excuse me, their formal principle is reason. That they, they come down and they say, look, that it doesn't make sense. Clearly, nobody rises from the dead. So even though it says he rose from the dead, we can't believe the historic person actually did. 
It has to mean something else. It's the same theological move. And that's where I think the the poison is in, in so many ways. It hits the soul, like you're pa- pointing out, Pastor Danzer, of the individual who can't find certainty in this in this system that in theory is all about certainty. Uh, and then it goes even further and it just it lops off the root of the entire tree. Yeah, it, that's a really good point that you made, Pastor Fisk, that uh, it, essentially all theology is uh, imminently practical to steal a title, I think, off of a fest shrift that was written for, um, I think it was John Pless. Um, but uh, this is where it gets down to it. This discussion of formal and material principles does have practical applications, uh, and it comes out in the Reformed theology. Uh, and you mentioned it earlier, the wonderful acronym of TULIP. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with it, being um, good Lutherans and never ever delving in the depths of Calvinism. Um, but TULIP is uh, kind of of the the Dutch uh, reformed area of Calvinism. Um, and it's uh, a shortened form of the canons of Dort. Um, can I give a little bit of a historical background for Dort? Yeah, absolutely. You got about five minutes. All right. So the Synod of Dort uh, was met in the Netherlands because they were at the p- the brink of civil war. There was a, di- a disagreement between election, this exact question. Uh, some of them were uh, following Jacob Arminius, uh, that theologian from Leiden University, who said that uh, election is in view of faith, that we are not totally, we are not, there's no such thing as original sin, that grace is resistible and you can lapse from grace. And then there was the classic reformed. Um, and so they they came in at 1618 and 1619 and made up the canons of Dort. Um, and TULIP itself uh, is an acronym, as I said before, the T stands for total depravity. The U uh stands for unconditional election. Well, I guess the, the total depravity is that we are born sinful, right? There's original sin. We are totally depraved. We are not capable of doing those good things toward God. Unconditional election is um, that God elected everybody beforehand without view of faith, which actually we would agree with there. Um, and then limited atonement is the L, and this is where it really comes down to it. Uh, that Jesus did not die for everybody. He did not die for the whole world because as we've been discussing, the Reformed don't believe that God really loved the whole world, that he would send his son to die for the whole world, the whole cosmos. I is irresistible grace. That is, as soon as God sends his grace to you, you cannot resist it. You don't have a choice. You're gonna get that grace whether you like it or not. Uh, And then you have the perseverance of the saints, the P of TULIP, that as soon as you are elected, you are going to persevere in this faith, Uh, that you cannot lose the faith, that there's nothing that you can do to lose the faith. This is uh, the the little bit of comfort that the Calvinists try to cling on to. Um, But in the end, it ends up robbing all comfort because you have to come up with the silent H of TULIP, as I like to call it, called historic faith. Um, Whereas they'll say, also looking at reason and experience, there are tons of people in the church who seem to be looking like they're Christians, but they're manifest sinners. Uh, They end up denying the faith later. So therefore, 
they never truly had the faith to begin with. Do you see the, the absolute robbing of all comfort here? That you, you cannot be certain that Jesus died for you, even if you are exhibiting the outward signs of faith, you are bearing the fruit of the Spirit, you can't really be certain because who knows whether or not you'll deny the faith and, well, it turns out you were never a Christian before. So the, the seeds of once saved, always saved kind of find their roots here a little bit. Right. And, yeah. and with that, then the attempt to comfort yourself by pointing to a previous faith, I know I was a Christian once, uh, I, I think I have experienced faith, but then also having no ability to know if even that faith was an authentic experience. And so even though they're, they're very, the Calvinist doctrine is very against Arminianism, you have mm-hmm. a, a real tenuous or light link here to the rebaptizing movement where you will be rebaptized every time you kind of reconvert because you just never really know if that first baptism really was it. And it's not that the baptism does anything, but since it's your demonstration of faith, it's, it's your proof to the world you have faith, you may never have been a Christian before you fell away, but now you are, and so you have to kind of start the whole thing all over again. So there's this bizarre uh, friendship, I, if I can call it that, between uh, the Baptist teaching and the Reformed teaching, even though technically you know, they, they really disagree with each other on this particular article. But then the ultimate point here, again, bringing it back to where Peter wants to drive us now, is this idea that reason is being pushed on top of the Scripture, and as a result, you get works as, as the end teaching. So he says, since actually not all men are saved, this is the teaching in Tulip that was just being talked about, we must conclude, the Reformed would say, that Christ's merit and God's will of grace do not extend over all men. We see that some aren't saved, therefore God doesn't want to save them all. To say that God wills something, the salvation of all men, which is only partially accomplished, is to make sport of God's wisdom, power, and majesty, right? And there you get this sovereignty idea that ultimately it's about how powerful God is. And now again, uh, Peeper does have a quote here from Calvin that's worth looking at, where Calvin says, If they obstinately insist on its being said that God is merciful to all, I will oppose to them what is elsewhere asserted, that our God in the heavens where he hath done whatsoever he pleased, which is to say, if you're going to say God has saved all men, I'm going to say God's in charge and not all men are saved, so deal with it. And he quotes a guy named Hodge who says, it cannot be supposed that God intends what is never accomplished. This cannot be affirmed by any rational being, much less can it be said of him whose power and wisdom are infinite. And Peeper adds here, then it should be noted here, that in quoting Psalm 115, Calvin takes the liberty to change the wording and kind of push it in a different direction. Now, a little bit of weeds there, but ultimately, the same reality. Is it reason or is it scripture? And that's going to actually tell you, is it works or is it grace? You're listening to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO. We are the messenger of good news. We got more of this coming your way, so stick around. One easy way to share the hope and comfort we have in Christ is through liturgical cards and art. Agnus Dei Liturgical Arts provides that assurance as each card contains a Bible verse meant to bring comfort to the receiver. The cards can be used throughout the year. Agnus Dei art selection of reproductions are also perfect for your home, your pastor, seminary students, or confirmation. AgnusDeiArts.com That's A-G-N-U-S-D-E-I-Arts.com Jesus said, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. 
Worldwide KFUO invites you to start and end your day with the Word of God and prayer with morning prayer at 9 a.m. and evening prayer at 5 p.m. The broadcasts of morning prayer and evening prayer are underwritten by Lutherans for Life. Weekdays on the Messenger of Good News, Worldwide KFUO. Join Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service and congregations across the country as we celebrate Refugee Sunday, a time to lift up the gifts that migrants and refugees bring to our country and to reflect on Christ's message to welcome the stranger. Together, we can continue the mission of welcoming, embracing, and empowering newcomers. Visit lirs.org slash kit to download the Refugee Sunday Kit for your congregations, including worship guides, bulletin inserts, videos, and more. lirs.org slash kit. Your smartphone takes you anywhere instantly. At a click, you can read, watch, and listen to just about anything. Some websites are good and some are bad. Some sites are truthful, but others are deceptive. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Hear the truth of Jesus daily on Worldwide KFUO. Using today's smartphone technology, KFUO brings the gospel to you where you are. KFUO is just a click away, 24 hours a day. KFUO.org. Words deeply connected with the Statue of Liberty from Emma Lazarus' poem, The New Colossus. And did you know, April 17th is celebrated as a day in 1907 when more immigrants were processed through Ellis Island than any other day in its history, 11,747 people. As early as the 1880s, Lazarus was speaking out against anti-Semitism in Europe, advocating for Jewish refugees coming to the United States, with many of her most passionate poems inspired by the Hebrew Bible. In The Banner of the Jew, she writes, With Moses' law and David's lyre, your ancient strength remains unbent. Let but an Ezra rise anew to lift the banner of the Jew. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. You've been listening to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO, and KFUO is listener-supported. What we do here at Cross Defense is brought to you by you. And so I got here in studio with me, Mary Schmidt of the Development Department here at KFUO, to talk a little bit about something we call share Yes, we are wanting to invite all of our listeners to tune in to KFUO on April 20th through the 22nd for our annual share fundraising event. Our goal is since 1924 has been to spread the gospel of Jesus worldwide over the radio airwaves and with advances in technology we can reach people now on the internet and it's a great time to partner with us to help us continue this mission for two and a half days we will have special guests joining us on air to talk about how KFUO has made an impact in their lives in their work and in their communities there are various levels of giving support that you can call in and pledge at and each level you will receive a unique thank you gift from KFUO this year's gifts include a KFUO keychain flashlight a KFUO long sleeve button-up shirt, our day sponsorship, a cargo cooler bag, and our KFUO tumbler cup. On top of this, we have a very generous matching gift this year, which means that when you pledge, your gift is doubled. That's twice the gift and twice the impact. As a listener-supported station, we depend on your help and the Lord's blessing to continue spreading the love of Jesus across the globe. So we hope that you will join us for fun on April 20th through the 22nd for share 2017. 
We know you love the programming here at KFUO. That's why you listen, because you know you're always going to get law and gospel. You're always going to get Jesus. And part of that then, us sharing Jesus with you and the world, is you helping us make that happen, Sherathon, is how we do that. And uh, doubling your dollar, what more can you ask for? If you love Cross Defense, and I know you do, you definitely need to tune in April 20th through the 22nd and participate in this year's Sherathon. Welcome back to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO, Worldview Demolition and Building It Back Up on the Solid Rock of Our Lord's Word. Talking with Pastor Sean Danzer, Pastor Aaron Hamilton about material principles, formal principles, that is, what you think you believe, what you really believe, and how if it's not founded on Scripture alone, but on something else like perhaps reason, what do you think you think, you end up with works instead of grace. And dealing with how Calvinism, Protestantism as a principle, not necessarily always asserted, but certainly mentioned from time to time, uh, tends to lean in the direction of, if I got to pick one, if I got to if I gotta trust scripture or I got to trust what I see, it, it comes down to what I see in most of their answers. The axiom rules the day. Uh, an axiom is kind of a simple philosophical kind of statement, uh, a reason statement that ends up having to trump everything else. And it's and it's a, a very easy way to disprove anything. Well, it's not consistent with this axiom, therefore it has to fail so the axiom can remain. The axiom here is that God does what he wants and it happens. Uh, there is nothing that God intends to do that is never accomplished. But uh, Lutherans are gonna say, well, we're gonna stick with the scriptures even if we have to end up violating that axiom. And then we have to be comfortable saying that there are in fact things that God intends to do that are never accomplished. But uh, the scriptures clearly teach this. The What I had mentioned before, the follow-ups to John 3.16 says that, you know, God uh, sends his son to save the whole world. God did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Uh, world, world, world. And then the very next verse talks about how, you know, everyone who believes is saved, but those uh, who are condemned uh, have are the ones who have not believed. Now all of a sudden we have a world, some of whom are saved and some of whom aren't. There are many other places in the scripture that that bring this up too. One of the interesting ones Peter mentions in another place is uh, just kind of a casual and passing thing. In Romans 14, verse 15, Paul's talking about, you know, uh, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols if it's going to offend your neighbor. And he says, come on, Christians, you don't want to destroy your uh, neighbor by your eating habits, destroy your neighbor for whom Christ died. A very interesting way of looking at the other people that you would know, uh, but that is a, a fair way to say it. If God is, if grace is universal, if, if Jesus Christ has given his uh, atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, that's a designation you could give to everybody. Everybody is someone for whom Christ died. And Paul is very concerned. He says, you could end up ruining somebody for whom Christ died by scandalizing them. So come on, uh, don't think about yourself. Yeah, this is really interesting that the, um, if if we always boil it down as Peeper does, um, to a religion of works versus a religion of grace. And uh, the Reformed are going to be right alongside us in our fight with the solas of the Reformation, the sola gratia, the by grace alone. Um, however, when it gets down to it, they end up abandoning it whenever they're talking about where do you find your comfort in this doctrine of election? 
And here in Article 12 of the Canons of Dort, um, I'll read this right here for you. The elect in due time, though in various degrees and in different measures, attain the assurance of this their eternal and unchangeable election, not by inquisitively prying into the secret and deep things of God, but by observing in themselves with a spiritual joy and holy pleasure the infallible fruits of election pointed out in the word of God, such as a true faith in Christ, filial fear, a godly sorrow for sin, a hungering and thirsting after righteousness, etc. And then they go in, go on and talk about how, oh, well, don't worry if you don't even see that kind of stuff. Just pray that God would give it to you more so that later on, you can have more of that grace and actually see the proof of that. So they don't point you to the word. They don't point you to the gracious things of Christ given to you objectively, externally, outside of you, the word, baptism, the absolution, the sacrament of the altar. No, they point you to what you're doing. Are you hungering and thirsting after righteousness? If you are, then you can be certain that you're elect. However, we always have to ask the question, well, am I hungering enough? Am I thirsting enough? Am I sorry enough for my sin? Do I have enough fear of God? Do I have true faith in Christ? How can I be certain of this? And so it's always looking inside of yourself. Um, Luther's phrase uh, that we're always uh, turned in on ourselves. This is the problem. And Christ comes in and takes us outside of ourselves and makes us look at him. Uh, and so we see the, the very strong demarcation here that the Reformed do, in fact, even though they hold to sola gratia as they claim they do, like we do, um, they still fall and their comfort is in their works, what they do, their inner emotions, their inner workings, but not in the objective means of grace that Christ gives us. Salvation by means, or I should say comfort, by means of sanctimonious spiritual self-gratification. Uh, not very comforting in the, in the actual practice. And getting to the point where, as people will say in just a moment, what happened then, in that moment, where should you look for your comfort, is the gospel was paralyzed. The gospel was frozen in time and left somewhere else, and instead the law was inserted as the place for you to go for your hope. And so you end up with a God of the law. But before he gets there, and I don't want to miss these verses, uh, he says, still back on page 28, he says, in a very pronounced way, Calvin rejects the scripture principle in favor of speculative rationalism when he denies these other Bible verses. These are what I want to look at. Matthew 23, 37, Luke 19, 41, Isaiah 65, 2, and Romans 10, 21. So I got Matthew 23, 37 here first, where Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. The emphasis there, of course, being on Jesus' desire to save them and that the thing stopping it from happening is not Jesus' lack of a desire to save them, and he is God. <laughs> his will gets to be whatever he wants his will to be, and yet they will not be saved. He, it happens again in Luke 19, 41. He drew near to the city. He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, there's an emphasis there, had known on this day the things that make for peace, 
but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon your head when your enemies will set up a barricade against you. And uh, and it goes on into talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, but it informs that previous passage on Luke 19. And then he points us to Isaiah 65, verse 2, where God says in his proclamation of judgment and salvation. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by name, my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices of people who provoke me to my face continually. So again, he's like, he's demonstrating vocably, look, I want to save you, but you will not be saved. And that's totally your decision. Finally, Romans chapter 10, verse 21. Half a moment to get there. Ha, it's a quote of that Isaiah passage in the whole question about how election works out in, in chapter 10. Who is Israel of Israel? God says, all day long I've held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So the Calvinists would have to say, well, he wasn't really holding out his hands. They are disobedient and contrary people. They're totally depraved, but he's not actually holding out his hands uh, because it's it's limited atonement. Uh, it, he isn't actually really trying to save them at all. Um, and then uh, it, it says as well, Peter says as well, it will be seen that Calvin is so obsessed with his rationalistic speculations. That's a good punk rock band name, rationalistic speculations. Um, he's so obsessed about the, the absolute God that he becomes the bitter enemy of all scripture statements that teach universal grace. That is, he has to go to these kinds of passages— I've shared some, Danzer shared some, um, and he has to he has to do violence to the text. He has to change the text to mean something other than it is. It doesn't mean all day long I've held up my hands to a disobedient people. It means all day long I've trapped disobedient people in their sins so that they might be held for perdition because that's how I created them in the first place, which that's a very different God <laughs> than the God Christianity preaches. I just talked for a while there, guys. You take it from here. Universal grace pours from the scriptures. Uh, uh, in every listener, you— I think you probably want to know if there is a God, then what does he think about me? Is he against me or is he on my side or does he want my salvation? Scripture declares it in words. Christ uh, talking about how he's like a hen wanting to gather these chicks with tears even does it. And God himself with an oath. I am so sorry. I don't have the the verse and the chapter, but uh, in Ezekiel, there's the famous uh, statement of God as surely as I live. I do not desire the death of a sinner, but rather that he turn from his evil way and live. God himself swears. I mean, what do you, we might swear on the Bible or on God. God has to swear on himself. There's nothing higher than him, not even reason. Uh, And he swears it, that he desires not our death, not our destruction, but our salvation. Um, And especially the, the, I think the, the one about Jesus talking to Jerusalem, you got the added uh, emphasis that, how are you going to call Israel the unchosen of God? These are his people from the very beginning, right? How often would he have uh, gathered? And and not just in a simple, uh, casual, you don't know if God's serious or if he's just, you know, joking. No, like a hen gathering her chicks, right? Flops around, the feathers are flying everywhere. You can imagine this image, right, to shelter them from the rain or from a hawk flying over beautiful and and with tears it's emotional and it's not just uh, reason in our minds you know getting all technical and theological this is just beautiful uh and the lord's heart is breaking because you would not 
So Ezekiel 33:11 that's the text. I'll just I'll read it real quick here. Say to them, as I live declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. And then he shouts, turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Right? O chosen people, <laughs> elected. Why? Why won't you believe? It's the paradox here. I mean, you really can't can't get around it. Go ahead, Hamilton. I think it's really interesting the way that Calvin goes around this whole thing, right? The whole, I I finally found it in the Institutes um, where Calvin discusses whether all means all. And obviously, as Pieper has pointed out, all does not mean all for Calvin. And here's what Calvin actually says. Uh, By, but why does he say all? It is that the consciences of the godly may rest more secure, when they understand there is no difference among sinners, provided faith be present. On the other hand, the wicked cannot claim they lack a sanctuary to which they may hide themselves from the bondage of sin inasmuch as they, out of their own ungratefulness, reject it when offered. Which, I mean, obviously that's going against the irresistible grace. Right. That's a sleight of, that's a sleight of hand. No, that's a sleight of hand. I know. This grace was never offered to them. They're not they're not being extra bad by rejecting it. I thought the point was it wasn't for them to begin with. Exactly. I it's, it's absolutely astounding to me that Calvin and the the Calvinists are always saying that we are the most logical, uh, everything fits in nicely. They are the dogmaticians and we Lutherans are the the slobbering fools who just follow Luther blindly, I guess. Um but this the the way that he interprets all here uh, means, okay, when God says all, it's just for the comfort of the elect. In case the elect would, for whatever reason, doubt that they were elect, God says all. But obviously he doesn't mean all. He just means the elect. But the problem is for those who are doubting that they're elect and if they know that all doesn't mean all, all only means elect— then it still robs them of all of their comfort. So Calvin is either calling God a liar, as I think Pieper accuses him of doing, um, or he's play acting. But essentially, it's what you said before. It, we, it robs all comfort. It paralyzes the gospel. We cannot trust God's word because he might not actually mean it for us. Irony of ironies. In the name of reason, he becomes unreasonable, builds a system, and then doesn't actually follow it. And he's forced to by, and this is where Peeper's very gentle, by his faith, by the fact that he's a believer. He has to preach the gospel somehow. Otherwise, it would be entirely paralyzed, and they would all go into rank unbelief. So, uh, as Peeper says on page 29... The children of God within the Calvinistic Reformed churches rejoice in the salvation gained for them by Christ only because they never believed in a particular grace, or if they have accepted it intellectually, they comfort themselves in the terrors of conscience with universal grace anyway. They just don't admit that that's what they're doing. And he has a, a footnote here pointing us to a guy named Schnecker, Schneckenberger, a uh, great name there, um, who in his who admits in detail how in pastoral practice, uh, the Calvinist finds himself operating with a Lutheran universal grace. So they, they'll talk particular grace, but when it comes down to, oh, I have this sinner in front of me, I got to comfort them. I have to tell them that they're saved and Jesus saved them. To do that, I have to assume universal grace if only for the moment. Yeah, before we move on, I, I want to point out that while we do point out that the the Reformed, uh, at least the Calvinist Reform, hold to that tulip, the five-point is what we'll call it five-point Calvinism, 
um, they don't ha- they don't view their confessions like uh, we in the Missouri Synod do or in confessional Lutheranism do, in that um, they're not they're not really bound to it. They get to pick and choose whichever parts they want, and so you'll be very hard pressed to find true hardcore five point Calvinism, um, which would be a really terrible punk rock name. Um, I would much rather have that other one we talked about. It's more before. like a more like a heavy metal name. Yeah, there you go. Hardcore five point Calvin. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd like to I'd like to back up to I mean, really to what you were saying though, Pastor Fisk. Uh, you know, we're getting to the point where I hope our listeners can hear that the um the bold axioms and the necessary logic is actually beginning to maybe attack itself or fall down. It certainly falls down when you look at all the Bible passages that you have to kind of I don't know, you got to sweep them under the rug to make all not mean all and world mean just a particular chunk of them. Uh, and it is falling apart. It'd be easy for us to go in and bash and to, you know, and, and to say we can't stand Calvinists and they're so wrong and all this. Um, I do love the way that Peeper is so calm and, uh, and and kind to them and, and rejoicing. This is this is one of the most important things uh, Lutherans teach. It's often overlooked. I've heard it said to me a number of times that uh, previous pastors at my congregations had taught that only Lutherans go to heaven or something. Another great example of people saying just the opposite. Oh, there are plenty of, of people in Calvinistic or Reformed churches who we expect to see in heaven. But why? It's because, thanks be to God, in the face of uh, attack from the devil, uh, doubts, uh, sinners who know their sins and are repentant and are looking for that question, what does God think about me? Uh, do I have any hope? Um they delivered the goods. They they had no choice, in fact, but to fall back on these script, words of Scripture and not explain them in a way, but say, my goodness, here's Jesus reaching out. He loves you. Um, here's his death for you. Here's you. You're part of this um, to preach universal grace, um, to which we can only say, you know, if you've got to be Lutheran for a moment, we're glad that was the moment. Uh, and you can have our teaching. You can use it, please. It's not ours. It's just the Scripture's teaching. Uh, but this is the teaching that matters. This is, uh, if we, finally, when it comes down to it, what's going to trouble a, a conscience? It's to hear the formal principle, the words of God, the scriptures, uh, declaring to them the material principle of everything, uh, that we are saved by God's gracious action for us, Jesus' suffering and death for us, his works for us, and not just for our sins, as First John 2 puts it, but for the sins of the whole world. I think that there is a, a a place where this idea that only Lutherans are saved comes from, and it's it's not really that we ever taught that, but that it was misheard and misunderstood. When mm-hmm. Dr. Walther talks about the evangelical Lutheran church, not meaning an institution or a, a particular group of people, but the confession of the evangelical Lutheran church, wherever people gather around that, there is the true visible church of God on earth. And then it's when that's heard— it's assumed that we would also mean by that that anybody who's not in that church isn't a Christian because that's kind of what Rome means. It's sort of what the missionary Baptists actually teach, right? So on both sides, mm. Protestant and Calvin, you actually have those who do go there and you hear Lutherans saying that, the, that Lutheranism is the true visible church of God and you think it means there's no Christians. We don't mean that at all. We mean that the Lutheran confession of the faith, the word and the sacrament which it proclaims and around which people gather is what makes the true visible church wherever it is, even if it's buried under a Babylonian captivity. And so there's a joke I've heard said before, which also I think could be misunderstood, which is that no, 
more people than Lutherans will get to go to heaven, but once we get to heaven, we'll all be Lutherans. There will only be Lutherans in heaven. And you can hear that as saying, oh, well, only Lutherans get to go. No, no, the point is, when we all get to heaven, we're all only going to believe what God says. And so we'll be, in theory, the formal and material principle of Lutheranism. That is, what God says is true no matter what, regardless of how I feel about it, and that what he says ultimately is grace justifying gift for me. And both of those things can be misunderstood and abused, but we don't want to lose them either in the midst of this. And yet we also, we have to work really hard to make sure people don't hear us wrong when we confess. Yeah, we actually believe there's such a thing as a pure, holy Catholic church, right? Well, I think it's what people are saying. They're they're saved not because of the Reformed teaching that denies universal grace, but they're saved in spite of it. That, that in a sense, when it counted, when the moment was there, they abandoned that teaching. They picked up a different teaching, and it's the teaching that Matthew or that Jesus gives in Matthew 23. Right? They were delighted to hear, "Oh my gosh, here's the Savior, and he's he's weeping over me. He longs to gather me as a hen under his gathers the chicks. I want to be a chick. Uh, receive me as a chick, Lord." Um, <laughs> Uh, and, and delighted to hear that. Wow, I'm safe. I think we just found our title for the show. Uh, <laughs> um, I want to be a chick. Receive me as a chick, Lord, I think is even better. <laughs> I, I'm writing it down so I don't forget it. Um, but I, I think I don't, I also don't want us to forget that the point of this exercise is not to demonstrate all the flaws of Calvinism. The point of this exercise is not to point out how Lutherans are better than Calvinists. The point of this exercise is to point out that the single source of division in the church, which also happens in Lutheran churches on a regular basis and also happens in individual lives on a daily basis, the source of division is separating yourself from Scripture alone as your worldview, as the way that you think and what truth actually is, and as a result, devolving into works by which you must again begin to justify what you've done, whether it's defending your reason or whether it's defending your sin, you end up chasing after these mythologies, and you're going to make up whatever you need to make up to comfort your conscience, but it's cold comfort is no comfort at all because it's ultimately false. And so I think what people wants us to do is begin to discern and see the temptation we have whoever we are, whatever church body we're in, to distrust Scripture and to trust ourselves instead. Amen. Our, we have nothing to be uh, arrogant or proud of if, if we indeed have the true teaching. We receive this. I love what Paul says, right? Um, what have we received, or what do we have that we have not received? Right. Uh, he was talking to a pretty arrogant congregation in Corinth, uh, and, and maybe we've been that in the past too, and shame on us. Uh, this isn't our teaching. Uh, that's what formal and material principle means. It's it's God's word, and uh, and grace means it isn't our super smartness that saved us either. I mean, it's our humble, um, to use a, um, it's a Lutheran term, sure, uh, to our humble submission to Christ uh, and to the grace that he gives to us. It's a daily dying to ourselves, to our reason, to our works, and being raised in Christ through the grace of the Holy Spirit given to us. Now, lest somebody listening to this believe that we are therefore Arminians because we reject Tulip, uh, and, you know, Peeper says just as material, he actually lumps in the Arminians with the Reformed, which is really an interesting move. And I think that the Reformed today would really not like the use of that language. And I, I can understand that, I think. But he's really more taking this not in terms of Reform meaning Calvin, but Reform meaning Protestant, meaning sacramentarian, meaning rejecting what the Lord's Supper is, being a different communion rather than a different, uh, say, quote-unquote church or institution. And so he, he lumps in the Arminian here and actually says that their teaching is a decision-based, excuse me, is a reason-based teaching too. The Arminian section of the Reformed Church, that's where he kind of lumps them in, makes much of universal grace, but does so at the expense of grace alone. 
Arminianism stands for a human cooperation in conversion. That is, it teaches that man has to be part of the believing exercise, right? So, oh yeah, God did it all, but I still got to believe, right? That's treating faith as if it's a work that you're doing. And thus limiting the sola gratia, the grace alone, Arminianism, decision theology, it has abandoned the scriptural principle for scripture ascribed the conversion and salvation of man to the monergism of God that is the working alone of God. So it's both sides of this tulip debate end up rejecting something that scripture says. We quiet Lutherans stand over and we're like, well, you guys are both right and you're both wrong. And if you'd stop having reason be your master, you might figure that out. Uh, just a minute for each of you to finish this thing up for me. It's absolutely amazing. The um, I remember a friend coming up to me right away uh, when I got to college asking, well, are you as Lutherans, are you Arminian or are you Calvinist? And I, um, in all honesty, didn't give the right answer. Um, but now I would respond with neither. I believe what scripture says. I believe in the unconditional election of God, uh, not in view of my faith, um, but I also believe that grace uh, in my fallen state, I am capable of rejecting that grace. And I thank God for uh, preserving me in his grace. The from the effect, the from experience question that every Christian, every pastor, everybody who's ever had a kid who left the faith asks is why are some saved and not others? And the Lutheran position is this is the question that scripture and we cannot answer. It does not. This is hidden in God's secret majesty. I mean, if, if God is everything he claims to be, there ought to be at least something that we don't understand. Um, this is the thing that is kept from us. And in fact, to hunt for it means you're going to find yourself in hell. I mean, you just can't come up against the things of God that are hidden. God has graciously hidden himself in his word, given us what he's revealed. And he's revealed both these things that to our appearance seem to contradict each other. But when we have our material principle in place, we follow the scriptures, even if they do want to contradict each other, then we keep them. That God has, in fact, desired everyone's salvation, and that our salvation is not dependent on on something in us. Uh, that's the only way, finally, to, to, to persevere in the faith, is to um, have that faith continually given to you in these means, in this word of God, the promises. You're listening to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO. We're the messenger of that good news you just heard from Pastor Danzer and Pastor Hamilton. Danzer is pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Great Bend and Peace Lutheran in Barney, North Dakota. And Pastor Hamilton serves Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lisbon, North Dakota. Cross Defense is underwritten for you by the Luther Academy. And you can check them out at lutheracademy.com. Get in touch with them and let them know how much you appreciate their work, including bringing you Cross Defense here on KFUO. Pieper closes this section by pointing to his response to Erasmus when he targeted the working of the will in the discussion about what Scripture teaches on grace versus works. Luther responded, You have me by the throat! You've attacked the vital part at once. That is, once you attack grace alone and its relationship to universal grace, you hit the striking core of theology. You hit the cross itself. And we'll be taking that up next week with that crux telegorum, the problem of this cross, what it means for our reason and how we have to ultimately die if we're going to live, how we did die and rise already in Christ, how, as Pastor Danzer said in a moment ago, that is a promise for you. I am your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, and until then, by all means, rock on.